Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah. Uh, and chapter 59 is where we are going to be this morning, looking at these um, really two, two sections that bookend the main portion of our text in, in 60 to 62. And we, we've been looking at these chapters over the last um, couple of weeks, and the controlling question of chapter 56 to 66, these 11, these final 11 chapters in Isaiah, the, the controlling question is this, what should God's people be doing in between the reality of the cross and Christ's return to establish his kingdom? And the answer that we get from Isaiah to that question that's given to us in the text necessitates, we said, reading chapters 56 to 66 by the light of what we have already studied and learned in the previous 55 chapters. If we read these chapters divorced from its context, if we just parachute in and read a command, we will fall into the trap of performative religious obligation, which the Pharisees did, right? When we see commands like preserve justice and do righteousness or keep your hand from doing evil, we'll be like, well, I just need to work harder. God just wants me to be a better person. Um, that he, he just, I just need to reform myself in a more religious individual, and then God will bless me. God will reward me with eternal life. That's the, that's the legalistic mindset that we will take on. And that is, we said, the complete wrong way to read and interpret and apply these final chapters. But when we read these chapters by the light of the suffering servant and his sacrificial work in chapter 53, then these final 11 chapters stir us up to a persevering faith. They, we identify ourselves with the justified remnant who hear, believe, and thus obey the word of God from a pure heart. And so it, rather than being weighed down with obligation, we are eager to know how does my God and my Savior, the one who's justified me, how do I live for him in this in-between time? How do I, an adopted child of the King of Kings, demonstrate, prove the genuineness of my faith in his promises? How do I do that? And what we learn is, as we study these chapters, is that the remnant are those who prove the reality of their faith by their genuine obedience to the word of God that, that encompasses both the head and the heart. It encompasses both belief and behavior. We said belief, mental assent alone to truth is not enough. That doesn't, that's not enough. And neither is behavior, just external deeds, enough. God's people are those who hear, they believe, and out of that belief and hearing, they obey the word of God from a spirit of faith. And so, a chapter, we've already dealt with chapters 56 to the first half of chapter 59, and we said that these opening chapters in this final section deal with what we ought to be in Christ over and against what we really are or what the world is in the present. And we saw in chapter 58 and 59, um, specifically, this, um, the attention is given by Isaiah to the character of persevering faith over and against the emptiness of performative religion. 
And Isaiah laid out three important contrasts for us. We saw first that God's people are those who walk sincerely and not superficially. In chapter 58, he makes that abundantly clear. He rebukes them for their sin, the people's sin in chapter uh, verse 1 of chapter 58. And, and his audience is kind of dumbfounded. Why is Isaiah confronting us? We're, we're religious people. Verse 3, why have you fasted and you do not see, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Right? They're, they're upset, but the reality is that God is not pleased with their religious you know, performance because it has been superficial. It has become external. Instead of humbling their hearts before God, they did what pleased themselves. Instead of turning to the Lord with a lowly spirit, their fasting ended with, with fighting and conflict. God says, if you're going to go through the motions... Don't think I'm going to have any regard for that kind of superficial fast. He actually says in verse 5, Do you think I'm satisfied with mere bowing of the head or physical action of donning sackcloth and ashes? God says, If you truly love me and you want to honor and glorify me with your life, you'll be deeply concerned for true justice. You'll care for the vulnerable and the needy among you. You'll, you won't turn a blind eye to those who are suffering, or who, those who are deprived of their proper liberty. He says, you'll, you'll take action to right those wrongs and to ensure that they're not repeated. He says, that's the kind of obedience that brings divine blessing. And then he spells out some of that blessing in verses 8 and following of chapter 58. And the, and, and the bottom line is, as we read chapter 58, the proper heart for God must stand behind all physical actions that we do on God's behalf. And God's people must walk sincerely, not superficially. And then we saw in chapter, 50, uh, chapter 59 and verses 1 to 8 that God's people draw near to God in Christ and they do not deal wickedly. Isaiah wants us to know that sin, our sin, separates us from God. It doesn't just separate us from each other. It separates us from fellowship with God himself. And it's not that God can't show his face or he's unable that somehow we've, we've hamstrung him. But no, he's saying he will not. He, he, he will not show his face. The problem is that he is holy and we are not. Isaiah goes on to document all the ways that they had been superficially religious, but had been practicing evil and wickedness in their lives. There, he says their hands are defiled with blood, their fingers are filled with iniquity, their lips have spoken falsehood, and on and on he goes. And so the question becomes, what hope is there if our sins have separated us from God? What, what, what will we do if he will not show his face or hear our words? We said the hope is in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his, hear, his ear excuse me, so dull that it cannot hear. The, the Lord's hand, we said, is the symbol of his personal action. His ear, the symbol of his personal attention, that is ready to act and listen to the contrite sinner. He is ready to hear our heartfelt cries for salvation. He promises he will draw near to the one who repents and turns to him in faith. Every heart that draws near to God 
Of course, the New Testament fills in all the details of this, but every heart that draws near to God the Father in faith enters through the door of the Son's finished work, being born anew by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the reality that is, that is kind of in nascent form here in, these, in chapter 59. And lastly, we saw that God's people confess sin openly rather than carry on carelessly. We said there's a shift between verses 8 and verse 9. And now the people are speaking in verse 9. It's all first-person plurals. And when the triune God rescues a sinner, he gives them a new heart. They turn to him in a moment of decisive repentance and faith. But that once-for-all turning, we said, becomes... It marks the beginning of a lifelong pattern of repentance, a lifelong pattern of, uh, of turning back to God, not to get saved again and again and again, but to renew the joy of our fellowship, to renew the, the, the intimacy and, the, and the, cl- the clarity of conscience that comes with having been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so you see this comprehensive acknowledgement of sin in verses 9 to the first part of verse 15. He talks about, you know, he says, we're, we've been wandering in darkness. We are helpless. We are in mourning. We are hopeless. Verse 12, he points out that we are guilty. He, he, he says, our transgressions are with us, right? They're multiplied before you. The problem isn't out there. The problem, the people acknowledge, is in here. It's in our hearts. And they don't, they don't, turn away from that. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't shift the blame onto others. They, they, they don't pretend as if they have no sin. They acknowledge it and they confess it before the Lord. This is how we live in the present. We are those who confess our sins. So 56 to the first part of uh, chapter 59, describe how God's people ought to live in this in-between time. This is how we conduct ourselves in the in-between time, in the present. This is God's instruction for us in the here and now. We walk by faith through a sinful world as a justified sinner, and we carry, at the same time, to borrow the words of Jude, we carry around with us the vestiges of our sin, at the same time hating the garment polluted by the flesh. This is who we are. We are both sinners and saints. But this gracious gift of persevering faith isn't just for the present. It's not just for now. It looks ahead. Our faith looks ahead to something greater, something that's yet to come in the future. The hope that we have in Christ is not hope just for hope's sake, right? It's not some kind of mental coping mechanism as we walk through a difficult life. Our hope looks expectantly. Our hope looks confidently to the fulfillment of all God's promises in his word. Our hope is a hope that looks ahead to a consummated reality in which God's kingdom and his glory break forth once and for all and overtake the kingdom of darkness. When all rebellion and all sin will be judged at a time when perfect righteousness will prevail. That is what we are looking forward to as believers. That's why Jesus taught you and I in his disciples' prayer to pray, what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what is that prayer for? Like, what is that? It's a prayer by the believer, you and I, 
praying for that consummated existence, right? The, the consummated existence that was forfeited by Adam, by his sin in the garden. We, it's a prayer that that, that that reality, that future reality will be, will be realized through the second Adam because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's a desire, when we pray that, we're, it's a desire that we no longer have to look through the glass dimly any longer, but we would be able to see, see our God and Savior and behold him face to face. It's, it's the ache, when we give that prayer, uh, when we, we pray that prayer, it's the ache of our present faith longing to become sight. And last week we looked at, just as a kind of a, um, as a detour, at James 5, 7 to 11, and we examined James' call to patient perseverance as we walk through this world, this sin-cursed world. And one of the final application questions was this. We asked, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for as a believer? Are you waiting for just earthly circumstances to get better, to change? You're just kind of looking for the next thing over the hill? Or... Are you waiting patiently for the coming of Christ himself? What are you waiting for? And Isaiah, essentially in these next three chapters, tells us what we should be waiting for. He's instructing us what we should be waiting for. And what we should be waiting for, to borrow the words of Paul, as he wrote wrote to Titus, is the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from chapter... Isaiah 59, 15, all the way to chapter 63 and verse 6, Isaiah previews what God's people are waiting patiently for as we pray the disciples' prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we are waiting for is really twofold. We are waiting for two things. First, the crushing defeat of the wicked, and we are also waiting for the crowning salvation of the righteous. That is what we are waiting. We are waiting for Christ to return, to destroy his enemies, to execute perfect and eternal justice. And at the same time, we are waiting for Christ to return to save his people. We are waiting for him to usher in perfect and eternal blessedness. And for us, we need to understand both sides of that same, it's a coin with two sides on it. They're, 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 one brings in the other. If we're going to have, we need to understand both sides of that coin if we're going to have a true expectation and hope for the future and not cling to some delusion. Christ is coming back, the scriptures tell us, to conquer and stamp out every last trace of sin. And Christ is coming back to reward and bless his people. And so this morning, it's that first work that we want to consider, God's judgment of evil. That's what we want to tackle. And next week, Lord willing, we'll unpack his salvation for the righteous. We're going to consider this morning Christ's coming to conquer and stamp out every last trace of evil. And we're going to look at that from three angles. First, we want to look at it through his identi- the identity of the one who does this. Who is this that's going to do what we just said? So we want to look at his identity. We want to look at his objective. What is it that this one will come to do? And third, what is his purpose? Why has he come to do it? So we want to consider who, what, and why, basically, uh, of 
Christ coming to judge the wicked. So we want to break it down into three parts. First, we want to look at Christ's crushing defeat of the wicked in terms of his identity. How is he revealed to us in Isaiah as we think about his coming in judgment? Now, the previous verses uh, that we just uh, uh, reviewed in, from chapter 59, verse 9, all the way to the first part of chapter, uh, verse 15, it records confession, right? These are God's people confessing their sin. That they, we, we do that. But what about those who never come to the realization of their sin? What about those who just don't care about their sin? What does God do about them? What about those who spit in the face of the servant's sacrifice? What about those who shake their fist at God in anger? Those who wear down the path of rebellion and unbelief and wickedness. You know, do they get a pass? Do they just die and slip through God's grip? Not at all. Uh, Not at all. Look at the second part of verse 15 in Isaiah 59. It says, Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw there was no man. And it was astonishing. And he was, and it was, and was astonished, excuse me, that there was no one to intercede. If God is righteous and just, and we know that he he is, that's who he is. He is righteousness. He is perfect justice. There must be a final showdown and climactic judgment where the servant's victory over sin and death is applied to his adversaries. There has to be this. Righteousness and justice must be upheld for God to be God. And that's what we see Christ preparing to carry out here in these verses. From chapter 59 and verse 15 down to verse 20, and again in chapter 63, just a couple pages over maybe in your Bible, in chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, he is describing God's vengeance on the nations. You could think of these two passages like a top and a tail to chapter 60 to 62, which are all about Christ's crowning salvation of the righteous. That's what we're going to look at next Sunday. But we want to consider the top and the tail part this morning. We want to look at those, those two sides of this text. Now, we, you'll remember, if you've, if you've been with us in this study, Isaiah has presented Christ in different ways in different portions of the book. In chapters 1 to 39, he's, he's presenting Jesus to us as the son of David. Messiah is the son of David. He is the, he is the one promised to David who would rule and reign with an eternal kingdom. In chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, he presents Christ to us and he calls him and refers to him as the Lord's servant. He's, he's the Lord's servant, the one who fulfills the role that God has for him on earth. But here in these final chapters, the, and really, especially in this section, but in, in 56 to 66, the prophet Isaiah portrays Christ in a third way. Here, he is described and portrayed as the regal conqueror. He is the regal conqueror. He's not describing three different people. You read this, you might think, oh, is, is this a different person? Like, no, it's the same person. Just like I can, be, I can be dad to my kids, and I can be pastor to you, and I can be 
you know, Joe the idiot out there in the world and people run into me or whatever. It's all the same person. He's not describing different people. He's describing Christ from three distinct vantage points. And just like the previous sections of Isaiah, he's presented to us here with an air of mystery. There's a sense of, uh, like, who is this guy? Um, because his identity, his, his personal identity is not known because he's a prophet. He's looking ahead to the future. But if you look at chapter 63 and verse 1, we are introduced to this regal conqueror. And, and he introduces him with a, with a question. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So Isaiah describes this figure who's emerging, but he's, he's not an ordinary person. You can just tell that by the, the words he uses. He's majestic in his apparel. He's marching in the greatness of his strength. This is a, this is a royal figure. And, and, and like a king returning from battle, he is returning, he says, from Edom and its capital city, which is Bosra. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament history, you may be familiar with Edom. Edom was a constant rock in Israel's shoe. They were the descendants of Esau, but they were constantly in opposition to God and his people. And so they become a placeholder for that group as he speaks about them here. And Isaiah is describing this regal figure, this greater David returning from battle against the enemies of God in Edom and the enemies of God's people. And the descriptors he, use, he uses here tell us important things. He is strong. This individual is full of life. He's not diminished. He's not disheveled after battle like a mere man would be. He is confident. He's composed. He's vigorous. This is a divine person. But Christ isn't just presented in these passages as a regal conqueror. He's also presented to us as a righteous rescuer a righteous rescuer. The answer to the question of his identity seals the deal that he's so much more than just a man and just an earthly king. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, who is this with his garments and his marching and his greatness and his strength? And then the answer is given at the end of verse 1. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. This regal conqueror speaks as one whose righteousness is unspoiled, whose saving power is inexhaustible. What does that tell us? It tells us that this righteous rescuer is not a human being, not a mere human being, because there's no soul alive apart from Jesus himself who's perfectly righteous with inexhaustible power to save. This is a divine person. And if that wasn't clear enough, he's also described back in chapter 59, in verse 16, as the arm of the Lord. God looks out at the world, and he sees no justice. He sees no one on earth that can do anything about it. And so he sends his own arm, the agent of his own personal touch, to bring about the salvation of the world. And the Lord's servant, the arm of the Lord, as he's called back in chapter 53, will justify the many. But here we see that he will also judge rebellious humanity with righteous judgment. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 5. 
Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying there? A couple of things. First, he confirms, I'm God, right? God, the Father has life in himself. In other words, he's self-existent. I have life in myself. He says, I'm God. Second, he says that the Father, I am the Father's designated agent. I act as if he were present, and I have been entrusted with final judgment on the earth. And so he is the arm of the Lord, This is a divine person. See, what the world needs to understand is that Jesus Christ is not someone you just sort of add to your life when you feel like it and ignore when you don't. He is is the Lord's regal conqueror. He is God's righteous rescuer. He is the Lord's arm, having been appointed by the Father, Acts 10, verse 42 says, to judge the living and the dead. When Christ came... The first time. Philippians 2 says he made himself of no reputation, right? He came as a lamb. But when he comes back, both the prophets and the apostles' testimony is in full agreement. He is coming back as a lion. When he came the first time, the world was amazed. Remember in chapter 53, that opening question, who, who, who is this the arm of the Lord? This one out of Bethlehem? When he comes back, A second time, the world will stand amazed. This is the arm of the Lord. How can we be so sure? Well, that leads into the second point we want to consider. We we consider Christ's coming in terms of his identity. Now we need to consider Christ's coming in terms of his objective. When Christ comes back, among other things, what is it that he's coming back to do? First, The text tells us he's coming back to repay wrath to his enemies. He is coming back to repay wrath to his enemies. Christ, as he's portrayed here as the regal conqueror, is dressed for battle. Look at verse 17 in Isaiah 59. He, speaking of himself, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. This word translated vengeance in English, like our word English uh, in, in English has kind of a negative connotation, but it's used a number of times throughout Isaiah and it has also a positive angle to it. Um, God's not just vindicating his name because his glory has been slighted. It captures the idea of maintaining justice. It has the idea of providing salvation for his people. Why has this one taken up the righteousness, uh, the, the breastplate of righteousness? Why the helmet of salvation? Why has he clothed himself with garments of vengeance and wrapped himself with zeal like a mantle? Because he's coming back to judge the unbelieving world. That's why. That's what divine justice requires. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. 
Isaiah's point is that everybody, far and wide, who stands in opposition to God, who has spurned the saving work of his son, will get what is owed to them. The whole earth, he says, will be held accountable to God for their deeds. This world is corrupt from top to the bottom. It's, it's, it is in the control of the evil one. And it seems like for us now, as we look around, it seems as though evil has won the day, right? right the righteous suffer and are consumed and the wicked seem to prosper. I mean, isn't that what he says back in the preceding uh, final verses of what we looked at last time? He says in verse 14 of chapter 59, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the streets and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Right? This is the world we live in, but when Christ returns, there will be, the scriptures tell us, a day of reckoning. And the punishment isn't going to be more than the crime deserves. It will be fitting. Every offense against an infinitely holy God will be met with an infinite eternal punishment in hell. Or it will be covered by the blood of Christ. So Christ is coming back to repay wrath to his enemies. But the picture in chapter 63 is even more terrifying as we see that Christ is coming back to trample the nations. Christ is coming back to trample the nations. Look at verse 2, Isaiah 63. Why? He's, he says, you know, who is this guy? And he says, I, it is I who speak in righteousness. And then he asks another question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Just a little fun fact, Edom means red, and Bozra means vintage. It's a play on words. It's intentional. He's going to Edom, the place where the, 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 wine is cru- the grapes are crushed to make the wine, and that's what he's going to do to them. Verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. Verse 6, I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The Lord describes his coming judgment here like treading out grapes in a winepress. Two times God speaks in these verses about my anger and my wrath. He says it in verse 3. He says it again in verse 6. Which stresses that his actions are an expression of righteous indignation against sin and against the sinful nations. And we need, we need to take these portions of scripture to heart. God is deadly serious about sin. You know, we look at sin, the world looks at sin, and they say, meh. It's not a big deal. But when God looks at sin and his word tells us, he looks at sin and he says, I will trample them in my wrath until my clothing is soaked in their blood. It puts a much more serious spin on it. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to understand that. But as terrifying as this is for the rebellious, for the unbeliever, 
As we learned this morning in equipping hour, Christ's coming in judgment is a consolation for those who are suffering for Christ's cause. Paul encourages the Thessalonian church to patiently endure suffering as they wait for Christ's coming. And the thing he points to, the thing that he he takes them back to, is God's crushing defeat of the wicked at his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, For after all, he says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He says, these will repay These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his holy ones on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Paul says, Christian, you have to play the long game. You have to play the long game. There's a day coming when the Lord is going to deal out retribution and bring relief. But until then, we persevere. Until then, we press on and trust him. But Christ's objective is clear. At his coming, it is nothing short. This is what's described here in chapter 63 and in 59. Is the final defeat of all evil and the righting of every wrong. Isaiah bids us thirdly to look at Christ's coming from another angle, a third angle, and that is his purpose. Why does Christ come to do it? Why does Christ come to do it? Well, first, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? And that's that's actually Isaiah's point. He says it both in chapter 59 and again in chapter 63. He says in verse 15 that the Lord saw what was on the earth and, it displeased, and he was displeased by there being no justice and he saw that there was no man and, as, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Look at chapter 63 again in verse 5. It's the same thing, but now it's just in first person. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. Isaiah is pointing out that humanity is utterly helpless to do anything about sin in the world, ultimately. You and I can't even do anything about the sin in our own hearts, right? How, much, how is any human being going to purge the whole world of sin and its effects? Just as, and just as repentance and faith are the Lord's gracious work in individual hearts as he causes us to turn to him and to, to, to trust in him and to bear fruit, the same way the final defeat of sin and the reversal of the curse is the Lord's sovereign work. Just as we see here in the text, he says he was astonished there was no one to intercede. Verse 16, then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Verse, uh, chapter 63, again, verse 5, so my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. The problem of sin on earth demands a heavenly response, which is good for us to know. There's no savior out there who's going to fundamentally change the world for the better apart from Christ. 
right? We have to recognize that. That is why the primary mission of the church in this age is to make disciples of the Savior with a capital S. That's our job. That's our, that's our goal. It's, it, we do that, and we do that one soul at a time. Our goal is not to maneuver and jockey and control the quarters of power. It will not get the job done. There's no Christian prince out there who's going to reform the land and turn people's hearts back to God. There's no combination of carrots and sticks that can be spliced together to usher in some golden age of righteousness. It's not going to happen. We look to the one who will make all things new. And so Christ does what he does because there's no one else to do it. Secondly, Christ's coming in judgment guarantees the security of a worldwide everlasting redemption. Christ's coming in judgment guarantees and secures worldwide everlasting redemption. A few messages ago, we, we looked at this concept of a redeemer. It's not a term we understand really well, even though we sing about it a lot. What is a redeemer? It's a next of kin, a, a close associate relative who rises up in the place of his helpless relative to take all their needs upon himself as if they were his own. That's what a redeemer is, as we see it in Old Testament texts. A redeemer does what the helpless cannot do. That's what Christ is for everyone who has turned to him in faith. Look at verse 20 of chapter 59. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Look at chapter 63 in verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Christ comes back to judge the wicked, to redeem his people once and for all. Creation groans, Romans 8 says, under sin's curse. Adam sinned and all who are in him are slaves of sin. Our eternal inheritance is nothing more than death and hell. Christ won the victory over sin and death through his perfect life, his own death in our place, in his victorious resurrection. And it's out of that victory, that he will take up his beloved children's helpless cause, secure, and bring them home to everlasting glory. That is his promise. And so we look to him. He came to secure everlasting redemption. Turn with me, just as we kind of draw our thoughts to a close here, and look at Psalm 2 for a second. Psalm 2 and verse 1. speaks of the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why, he says, are the nations in an uproar, in the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the world the way it presently is, and will only intensify as the end of the age approaches. The nations rage, the people plot hopelessly, and the kings and the rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord and his Messiah. That's the world we live in. 
but it's a hopeless cause. The enemies of Christ are going to make war on Jesus and the armies of heaven when they come. But it's a, it's a fool's errand. They cannot win. It's not even going to be a contest. Look at verse 4. The Lord, he, sits in, he who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. To stand in opposition to Christ is foolishness of the highest order. Revelation 19, verse 15, describes Christ's return. And he says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The question is, are you a participant in that foolishness? Are you living your life in preparation for a kamikaze mission against the almighty conqueror? The righteous rescuer, the arm of the Lord. Or have you embraced the rule of the sovereign Lord of the universe? Isaiah tells us that all who've given themselves to falsehood and rebellion will regret what they've done. He describes with an everlasting regret. Listen, the fleeting excitement of sin, the passing pleasures of sin as the writer of Hebrews describes it, it's a lot like the adrenaline rush of leaping off a 50-story building. It's fun for a moment but it ends in destruction. Don't live for the rush that ends in destruction. Live, to use the words of Revelation, to mount a white horse and ride to victory. In the preceding verses of Revelation 19, Christ is pictured coming on a white horse with the armies of heaven following behind him. Clothed, those, those armies, he says, are clothed with fine linen, white and clean. These are not angels that are coming with him. It's the redeemed. It's the redeemed. They are believers. Those who have been clothed with Christ's righteousness share in his holiness and participate in this climactic victory over evil that Isaiah describes. And this, this then is why God's people long for his appearing. This is why we obey him with instant willingness. Your deeds, my deeds, mundane, feeble, shot through with sin as they are, become eternally significant when they're done for God and for his glory. And the crushing defeat of the wicked that Christ is going to carry out, that is going to give way to crowning salvation for the righteous. In a new heaven, in a new earth. No more darkness, no more death, no more defeat. Simply light and life in eternal rest. And that's what we're going to see described for us next week in chapter 60 to 62. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not only given us comfort and encouragement and strength, but you have also given us warnings and pictures, things that we, we really don't like to dwell on, to be honest. It, it frightens us. It um, it. It saddens us, it grieves us, um, it, um, it causes us to, to pull back and kind of turn away as we think about it in its graphic imagery. But your hatred for sin is a real hatred, and your judgment for sin is a real judgment.
uh, and we need to consider it. And so, Lord, if there's any here this morning who are not in Christ and have not been covered with Christ's righteous robes, I pray that they would take these things to heart this morning, draw hearts to you. Behold, Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. And for those who have, as we perhaps will encounter difficulties and and maybe even suffer persecution on account of our trust in you, Lord, help us to take comfort to know that uh, it has not escaped your just eye, that there is a day coming when all wickedness, all sin, all evil, and all who are in rebellion against you will be finally and fully put away in this world that you will recreate in perfect glory will be one of where, where everything will be made new. And we long for that day, Lord. We look for that day with a hopeful heart. We thank you for this word. We pray that you would emboss it on our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.